Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Nick Toon. I'm Director of Corporate Relations at Channel 4. I just want to say welcome to our building. Glad to have you here. I guess it's appropriate for a conference about mobility that you've all moved from uh, one building just across the road over here for the next part of the session. Um, we're really glad to be doing this event jointly with Editorial Intelligence and Edelman and the other sponsors. Mo- mobile is a really big issue for us, something we're really interested in. It's transforming the way that our audiences and consumers use our content. More importantly, it's transforming the kind of content we can supply to audiences. We just had a really good example with uh, Sri Lanka's Killing Fields, a uh, film that was presented by Jon Snow. Uh, which features some incredibly harrowing footage of the, uh, some of the alleged atrocities that took place at the end of the Sri Lankan Civil War, all taken on mobile phones by participants there because the journalists had been thrown out. Uh, and as John uh, Snow himself has said, we couldn't have made that program without that content, and the world has changed as a result of that content in terms of our ability to hold governments to account. So it's something we're really interested in. We're delighted to have you here. Anyway, enjoy the rest of the afternoon. Uh, without further ado, I'll hand you over to Martin Fuel. Thank you, Nick. Uh, yeah, my name is Martin Fuel. I'm the deputy editor of Channel 4 News, which we at ITN are very proud and privileged to make for Channel 4. Let me add my welcome to Nick's and hope that this afternoon is as stimulating as this morning was and indeed as stimulating as today's news. As you may be aware, uh, the phone hacking uh, story rolls on. Um, the Prime Minister has just announced that there will be a public inquiry into phone hacking. Not yet, when the police investigations are complete, so we don't know the scope, we don't know the timetable. Um, This is, I would say, the second public inquiry in in the past decade, which has been instigated because of act uh, of journalism, if if that's what you call it, or acts of journalism. Um, And I think it's going to be a very significant moment uh, for journalism, as well as for Metropolitan Police, for uh, News International, and for our politicians as well. Um, And I think we will find an opportunity to allow you to ask some Q&A about that later on, and some of our our speakers may touch upon it. So before I introduce this terrific panel we've got today... um, and address ourselves to the news media's perspective on the mobile world, no visit to Channel 4 would be complete uh, without hearing from our anchor, in every sense, Jon Snow. Uh, We invited him to tee up this session with some of his own thoughts on the transforming craft of journalism. When I started reporting, there were no mobile phones. The fighting now is at Hara, some 60 miles beyond these hills. Planning out across the fields around the city, there are men on their fronts with their guns taking no chances. And the great thing was, basically, the office would cast you off into the blue beyond. Because I don't want him to wave a white flag and run away when they start shooting. Some piece of film would come back with your voice track on it and away you'd go. That was all there was. Well, obviously, Google and search engines absolute gold dust. Twitter has made a fantastic difference. 
because people are leading you to water all the time. I think the biggest impact it's had really has been to turn what once was a one-way street, me declaring to the camera what was going on, and really the only comeback was a letter in green ink underlined in red about twice every fortnight. And now people are, are jamming your inbox with material, so it's become a two-way communication with the viewer. Well, earlier today I asked people on Twitter to give me their definitions of the big society, and you'll see some of their answers on the screen. I think the defining moment for me was this year, standing in Tahrir Square, tweeting that men on camels with guns were charging in my direction. Um, I mean, it was absolutely fantastic. And to feel the comeback from people saying, so what happened next? You know, and then you were feeding more material, linking them to other people's stuff. Absolutely sensational. A moment in which the viewer and you were linked in a kind of joint adventure, trying to find out what was going on in the Arab Spring. In prison, Wail Goni had no idea of the size of the movement sparked by that Facebook page, nor the violence of the attempt to put it down. I am no hero, he said. I think Twitter is really what is taking you to places where you can't be. During the worst of Bahrain, I was following perhaps 10 different Bahraini tweeters and getting fantastic material. Get rid of the people who tell you they woke up drunk. Find the people who tell you the things that you didn't know. This is how state television reported that uprising. 120 members of the security forces killed by terrorists. Anti-government demonstrators say this is a lie, posting video on YouTube of protesters they say were shot by the security forces. Foreign journalists are banned and the truth is elusive. It's the democratization of the media, the golden age. And we are merely processors. Of course we retrieve it. Of course we look for original information and become generators of original information ourselves. But we're also the collators of information. But in terms of the workload, boy, I mean, I have never worked so hard in my life. You know, one starts blogging at six in the morning, deal with the tweets and the rest of it, and then the day's underway. It's very dangerous to go knocking about believing that what you read on Twitter is in some way biblical. I mean, you get a one source suggesting that something has happened and you tend to think, ah, that, that, that's what I thought would happen. And then think, they know no more than I do. And you must go back to that original belief that we had to have two sources. There are two areas that, of prosperity. The first is gobbets of information. And the second is quite lengthy pieces. But what it's augmented by is this minute-by-minute minute tease of new things that are happening that push you around to where you ought to be. I, I'm absolutely convinced that if you want to know, you will know better than you ever have before. Thank you, John. Um, so it has been a remarkable year then, I think, for mobile information. The Arab Spring, um, the liberating, democratising power of uh, modern mobile technology, as John talked about there, challenging the power of authoritarian governments to control the flow of information to their people and empowering protesters and challenging democratic governments as well, I think, like our own, to condone or condemn, to find their own way to control this geop uh, geopolitical instability. Those are the kind of themes that you find frequently in the writings of Con Coughlin, executive foreign editor of the Telegraph Media Group, and especially in his weekly column in the Daily Telegraph, covering foreign affairs, global security and defence. It's always provocative. Uh, only last week, Con argued... It's time for Britain to merge its army, navy and air force. 
thereby managing to upset most of the key demographics of the Daily Telegraph, <laughs> I jest, um, but actually generating a fantastic uh, flow of letters to the, to the letters page as well. Um, you saw John revelling in the digital chase in Turrier Square, um, but that spew of information that he was talking about has produced great challenges, I think, for journalists. The lie can now get all the way around the world before it gets its boots on, uh, before the truth gets its boots on, rather, courtesy of social media. There's more unverified, uncheckable information out there than ever before, um, and a nagging concern about our inability to be absolutely sure about the footage we rely on, whether it's come from Syria or Libya or, or wherever. A gay girl in Damascus isn't a radical blogger in uh, Syria. She's a he. He's doing a master's degree in Edinburgh, not blogging from Damascus. There's no evidence of systematic rape as a weapon of war in Libya, according to Amnesty and Human Rights Watch. So who is telling the truth? Perhaps no news organisation in the world is as close to these dilemmas day in, day out as Reuters. Uh, Jodie Ginsberg is their UK and Ireland bureau chief, but she's also worked extensively in Africa. She managed to tempt the boss of MI6 in front of live television cameras at Reuters London HQ to give the first such address by a top spook, uh, almost matching the exposure he'd previously had on his wife's Facebook page. Um, making headlines, moving markets, we'll hear Jodie's perspective on the impact of instant information uh, and on business news too. And so to the UK uh, today, uh, this extraordinary series of events uh, we've had this year, hitting newspapers, broadcasters, digital media. The hacking story, if you like, started with the insecurity of digital voicemail. Um, now the police, media, unable to keep their secrets as well, it would seem. Uh, the courts struggling to keep secrets. We had twist Twitter busting uh, Ryan Giggs' privacy. A juror, Facebook's a defendant, um, gets... Uh, sentence for contempt. Another case collapses when the media report Levi Belfield's conviction for murdering Millie Dowler. And that convention we have in the UK of trying to believe that juries can be shut up and insulated from the world of information so they only focus on the evidence they hear in court, that's under assault too. Um, even before uh, today's public inquiry with all that will bring. So we've got this incredible, uncontrollable, uncontrolled flow of information uh, knocking down our houses, challenging our ethics, challenging our business models. John Lloyd, uh, Director of Journalism at the Reuters Institute and a contributing editor at the Financial Times, has been wrestling for some time uh, with the modern challenges to our media and grappling with the impact on the way news is presented, uh, the business models that underpin quality journalism and the relationship between the news media and political discourse. So welcome to all, to John Lloyd, Jody Ginsburg and Con Coughlin. Ladies and gentlemen, your panel. Thank you. So each of our panellists has different areas they'd like to cover, and Con will begin. Well, good afternoon. Um, I'm going to talk about what is generally known as the Arab Spring and the way it's impacting on the new media age we live in. Uh, a bit like Jon Snow, I'm also a journalistic dinosaur, uh, when I first started uh, out in the 1980s in Beirut, um, the method of communication was a telex machine, and you punched a tape and you sent it to London, and if you were lucky, 
once a day you get a phone call through to London that lasted a minute before the line went dead. So you lived in splendid isolation and you basically did a reporting job of going out, seeing what was going on, talking to people, interviewing officials and compiling a report. It was a very thorough process and rather leisurely process compared with what we do today. Um, By contrast, just before I came here, the last thing I did in the office was to blog on David Cameron's statements on Afghanistan. He's just, as you know, just come back from Afghanistan. Um, there is a very, there's been a very heated debate about the timing of when uh, our troops are withdrawn, whether we have two more fighting seasons or not. Um, he's made a statement in the Commons. Clearly the generals have got the better of him in Camp Bastion and he's delayed the withdrawal till the end of next year. This happened uh, just after uh, Prime Minister's questions. Within 10 minutes, I had a blog up, instant reaction. I didn't have the, the, the time or the leisure to analyse his speech. Um, you just go straight out there because that is what's required. And so looking at the, the events in, in the Middle East over the last few months, starting, of course, really in Tahrir Square, as John Snow pointed out, um, I think when you look at these movements, and particularly actually the enduring revolt that's been taking place in Syria. I think what has surprised people, A, is the fact that the the protesters have sustained their campaign for so long in the face of the usual brutal intimidation tactics of the Assad regime, Uh, and B, how how they managed to do this. And I think think the, the use of social media has been very, very important. And we first saw it in Tahrir Square... In fact, we first saw it, if, if you want to trace the origins of this and this, this movement in, in the Middle East, I would argue, uh, back to the, the disputed Iranian election in the summer of 2009, when we had, for the first time since the 1979 Iranian revolution, mass protests on the streets of Tehran and elsewhere, well-coordinated protests, coordinated mainly through the social media. And very quickly in Iran, what happened was a battle then developed between the state uh, propaganda assets, um, state bloggers, state websites, against the Green Movement's uh, websites. And if you recall, uh, the moment an opposition website became very popular, it went down because the government had got, got, uh, got got its mitts on it. This was true to a lesser extent in Egypt. Again... Social media uh, networks were very instrumental in helping to coordinate the protests that, that le- eventually resulted in the overthrow of the Egyptian president. So the, 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 these systems, these networks, are clearly very, very relevant. But I think it's pushing it to say that they are responsible for the, the, the success of the movements. I think they're very useful in helping to coordinate the protests. But one of the, one of the great failings, of, in my view, and we might want to discuss this, of the process in the Middle East region over the last few months is the failure of, of an effective leadership uh, to emerge. Um, if you're going to overthrow a dictator like Assad um, or overthrow the monarchy in Bahrain, then you've got to have an effective leadership and structure to challenge the status quo. But because the protests are so diffuse, I would suggest that it actually takes 
um, some of the momentum out of the campaign. And it will be very interesting, I think, to see what, what the outcome is in Egypt later this year, because there is no effective leadership. Um, what we have, the, the, the two most effective institutions in Egypt, in my view, are the military and the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, the secularists, the young people who took the streets and occupied Tahrir Square, the, the people that John Snow was hanging out with uh, in February and March, you know, where's their voice? How will it be reflected in the elections in September? So that, that's, that's the sort of Arab side of the, the issue. From a journalist's point of view, um, and again, uh, we've alluded to that with, with the, the whole Damascus hoaxer, um, the challenge for the media is basically to identify what is a legitimate source and what is not. And because there is so much information going out, I mean, John Snow, again, was talking about the, the number of tweets um, he was following in Bahrain. Well, how many are legitimate? I don't know, but I would suspect, and certainly if I was advising the Bahrain government, it would be my advice to them, get your own tweet site, get your own website, get your own bloggers, get your message out, disguise it, just as the, just as the, as the Scottish PhD student um, turned into a lesbian... Um, Damascene blogger. I mean, this is very easy to do. And I think the the big challenge for the media today is, A, we are dealing with the immediacy uh, of our deadlines. As I said, you know, something happens, we have to be out there immediately. We can't wait for that evening's news bulletin. We can't wait for tomorrow's bullet uh, edition. We have to be out there. So, But in order to respond, we need somehow to verify our sources and make sure that when we put our names to something, we're not making complete fools of ourselves. Those are my opening thoughts. Thank you, Con. Uh, As I said, we'll have an extended Q&A session, but let's move on to um, Jodie from Reuters and let's get your perspective. Okay. Um, I wanted to talk about three things uh, just in my opening remarks and then I think it would be really interesting to have a dialogue around them. The first is the pressure of speed. The second deals with the issues of accuracy, veracity and security. And the third speaks to a point that Con actually alluded to in his opening remarks which is the ability that mobile technology gives journalists to get out more and do more um, Reuters sets its stall by a few key principles, and among these are being fast, being accurate, and being free from bias. Mobile media, with its ability for everyone and anyone to push out information at top speed, presents organisations like ourselves a serious challenge and, I think, an immense opportunity. So uh, let's deal with speed. Um, Reuters used to have a bit of a monopoly on this, being one of the only news agencies going. We started off with pigeons, not overly speedy, uh, but nobody else was doing it, so we could have the luxury of being first. Then telegrams, where we certainly did have the edge, and then owning our own terminals, which people had to buy, and therefore getting the news through that, and being the only provider also helps too. Uh, It's more difficult when you're confronted with... Uh, a plethora of providers and striving to be first which is something that all journalists and all news organisations like to do perhaps sometimes to the detriment of all else uh, is a real difficulty for us because we continue like all journalists we would like to be first with the news 
Uh, however, I think what's been interesting about developments, I would say, in the past few years is that what has shifted is a sense that actually it's much better to be accurate than it is to necessarily be first. And one of the elements that certain news providers, I think, can use to their advantage is their trustworthiness. Uh, lots of people will say that they have retained Reuters terminals at a time when uh, they're trying to cut down news providers because they believe it if it's on Reuters, which is an immense responsibility uh, and something that we take enormously seriously, but I think is something that other large news organisations also look to trade off as they're trying to find a balance between this, these huge cacophony of voices and trying to make themselves distinct, understood and respected. And I think your brand, when your brand is around, is around trust and veracity in news provision, becomes increasingly crucial at a time when everybody can do the news. Um, and I think this is brought, was brought, I think, into quite sharp relief uh, at the beginning of the week when Fox News's Twitter account was hacked into. If you have the reputation... Um, as some organisations do, as, as not necessarily being entirely trustworthy. Some people take that with a, might take that with a pinch of salt. If uh, that came out on a very well-respected news brand that was considered to be largely, 99% of the time, accurate, you can imagine the repercussions that that would have. So I think as we move into a world where I can tweet with a Reuters account from anywhere... We have to be enormously cognizant of the risks and the dangers that that presents. You know, what happens if, I'm now saying this having realised that my bag is over there, somebody picks up my, my phone, unlocks my account and tweets from my account because that is a Reuters account and, and it is very possible to use that in a way that you could quite easily manipulate markets if you wanted to. Uh, and I think for business journalism, that's a real issue. You know, as bloggers as other sources get out onto Twitter and into other news, uh, news platforms, the ability of people who want to manipulate share prices or markets quite rapidly can do so through these better of sources, and therefore having a respectable brand becomes very important. Um, the last sort of element that I wanted to talk about really is... Um, a couple of issues around security. A mobile, mobile technology is a great opportunity. I was talking to a colleague recently who said that in um, Nigeria, where I've worked, I was saying how I'd forgotten how to use a sat phone, and I was going to have to remember because I'm going to Nigeria shortly, and they said, oh, don't worry, our bureau chief doesn't know how to use a sat phone. We no longer use sat phones to file. In Nigeria, you can just take your mobile phone and just do it there. And I thought, you know, that's in six years, that's changed very quickly brilliant opportunity also but also presents you a great challenge if you're working in places like Afghanistan where you know if you if you forget to switch your geolocation device off on your mobile phone you might be in danger as well and in places like we talked about how con talked about how governments might use these kinds of technologies to their advantage Certainly governments are using Facebook pages and pretending to be other people in those kinds of regimes. In places like Burma, for example, uh, people, government officials were using 
technology on uh, computer technology to look at people's photographs from protests to work out who the people taking the pictures were so that they could uh, arrest them. So there's, though it's a great opportunity, there's, a, there's immense risks as well that we have to be conscious of in using a lot of these new technologies. Uh, but I do think it has the great potential to free up journalists to get out and do more and rely less on uh, the sort of noise coming from the desk, certainly in, in centralised headquarters, that's perhaps trying to push one or other line. Thank you. John. Uh, thanks, Martin. Uh, like uh, Colin and Jody, I've uh, covered news for much of my life at home and abroad. And like Colin, I've done it mainly for, almost exclusively, for newspapers. And you get the sense now that uh, this is the, the twilight uh, of newspapers, the twilight of the dogs. Um, we always called ourselves watchdogs. Dog does not eat dog. It's now our twilight, I think. And it's coming faster than we thought because what's happened in the last few days of the tabloids, which was part of the pride that British journalists had, odd to think of it now, was that we covered, we had newspapers which covered everything. We were, had high-end newspapers and low-end newspapers. We had newspapers which were popular and newspapers like my own, which was unpopular. And therefore, we had a huge choice. And in doing that, we held power to account more effectively. Um, because everybody or every section of society read a newspaper, unlike in other countries like Italy, France, so on, with no tabloid press, perhaps to a degree also the United States, which no, with no popular press but city, city papers. So we covered the waterfront. We were proud of ourselves. We saw ourselves as a pillar of democracy. And the shock, I think, of what's happened in the last two or three days, and I think it will be a shock for the public, is that those who have said we are a pillar of democracy, we are the watchdogs of human and civil rights, have been the destroyers of human and civil rights. And that taints us all. And it may be actually the beginning of the end of a certain kind of tabloid culture, which would be something of a, a pity. But the Faustian pact that the tabloids made 30 or 40 years ago to give up being covering foreign affairs a bit, politics quite a lot, social matters quite a lot, the shape of the Daily Mirror and others, indeed the Sun in its first manifestation as a radical leftist paper, that the Faustian pact was we will become the paper of celebrity, scandal and sex. And the pressure now in a falling market to go deeper and deeper into private life in order to get that has led us to where we are and may actually be self-destructive. But that's not what I wanted to talk about. What I wanted to talk about was that newspapers are finite constructions. Newspapers, they're papers. They have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And, um, but what we're coming into the era of is an infinite space in which newspapers will be transferred onto screens and increasingly onto tablets, um, uh, where the ability to read not just what you're presented from whatever it might be, uh, whatever source it might be, but everything else to aggregate to yourself social media, stuff through Google, links of various kinds is, as I say, more or less infinite. So you can get 
the two-line headline if you want that, and you, or you can get the hours browsing, and much of it anyway will be in audio and video and in, in links. So journalism is going to have to have a, a different business model. I think that although you feel a great, one feels a great regret about the passage of a particular kind of culture, the ink-based, print-based culture, clearly I think tablets are, go, are, going to be, are better at carrying what newspapers claim to do. They're better because they're, they're more flexible, they've got more... Um, They've got an ability to go deeper into a story, to use audio, video, and links. And the presentation, therefore, of newspapers will become, uh, which in Britain especially, and in other countries where newspapers are largely sold through newsstands rather than on subscription, how we present ourselves is already becoming more important on the screen than it is in, in newspaper. We're beginning to realize, it's taken a wee while, but not actually all that long, that, that we cannot simply replicate a newspaper and put it on the web. That's what happened first of all, but now as web designers get their hands on it, uh, they are beginning to realize that that is very restrictive and that much more can and should and is being and will be in the future done with different ways of presenting the news. So at the same time, you will also get, as you get now with The Economist, an offering on the web, which essentially is The Economist. It's the same. It's just columns of type uh, and we photographs and, and um, drawings and so on. It's The Economist as you know, just in another, in another guise, but that's presumably what people want. So you, you get some of that, but much of it will be quite different. The logic of the tablet and the screen will take over, which raises the question... The business question, I think the business model question is, can newspapers keep their shape? In other words, if, if you put The Guardian or The New York Times on the web, why should you stop there? Because people will increasingly no longer get The Guardian or The New York Times. They will get the story about Tahrir Square. They will want information on that. Some of it might come from The New York Times or The Guardian, but others will come from other... other places. So the huge problem for our industry is what do we become when we lose our shape and when we lose our, uh, our finity, when we go into infinity. And lastly, that means, I think, that the whole notion of telling a story, I mean, all, all of us talk about, I did a story on, whether it's, it's television or radio or newspapers or magazines, she did a story on X. He did a story on Y. We, we talk about narratives. Um, the way in which we tell stories is bound to change and maybe bound to change fundamentally. To some degree, it's been, you know, it's been more or less the same for me two centuries since newspapers became what, began to become what they have become in the 20th and 21st centuries. Uh, but that there no longer will be that. There will be very, very different ways of telling stories. People now, my kids' generation, tell stories to each other and you know, mention that they read X or they thought about Y or they heard Z. And so it becomes social in a way it was not before. So storytelling, the act of, of saying something has happened from A to Z, the way in which we approach things, saying first paragraph, this is why you should read this, second paragraph, this is what, what happened very briefly, and then here's 
the details about it, that may well go. We may start, and what newspapers thought was the end or the middle, we'll start with, probably with visuals first, uh, and then some text. The guy who runs the Times website, I think, John Hill, told me that uh, if it wasn't for a matter of legacy issues, i.e. the Times is the Times after all, he would do away with much of the text and just use it for captions. You'd have audio and video and, uh, and you know, do away with all these boring columns of print. So what I think the next generation of journalists is going to be faced with is, is retelling the way in which they tell stories. Uh, when Connie uh, brings up the, the old telex machine, which, which I also used from, from Moscow and Prague and Warsaw, you, know, they, you had a sense that this is the way news was told. You bashed it out on a, on a telex and then sent it in and then went about your business. It no longer, of course, is like that. And, and that then means not just that we work harder, or some of us work harder. It, it is that we are telling the story differently and people are, are ingesting it differently. So the whole nature of journalism is now changing. Thank you, John. Uh, well, I think you've heard a really diverse range of opinions on what mobile media is doing to journalism and is doing to, to news uh, from the rather gloomy and apocalyptic thought that we're in the twilight of our lives as um, perhaps newspaper journalists or, or whatever, through to the, uh, John's earlier enthusiasm. So is, is this about a new golden age, uh, as John Snow was saying, uh, or are we like the, the um, uh, Mrs. Bourne, the, the mother-in-law, wondering why nobody writes us thank you letters anymore? We're, we're dinosaurs, we're an anachronism. Can I just open with a quick question for, for Con, and then I'd very much like to uh, ask a couple of questions of our other panellists um, before you um, uh, contribute. Con, one of the themes in what you were talking about was this ability that, that we have as professional journalists, and perhaps governments have as well, to, to be able to discern the difference between reality and illusion, if you like, um, talked about Iran, you talked about the, the um, Damascus uh, blogger. Do you think we've, we've properly understood now and at the time the significance of the so-called virtual revolutions, if you like, in uh, Egypt, Libya, uh, Syria and beyond, where, where after all we've effectively seen two coup d'etat, one in Egypt, one guy's gone, replaced by a different soldier, Libya, head of state's gone. Some would say the old guard, uh, sorry, um, Tunisia rather, the, the old guard's still hanging on. Do, do we really understand what's going on? Have we, have we been seduced by this illusion of popular revolt? Well, I think the, the first duty of a journalist is to try and you know, get to the truth. And whether you're dealing with you know, social media or a Downing Street spin doctor, you know, you've still got to try and find out what's actually going on. Um, and I think when you drill down to what is going on in Egypt or what has happened in Egypt, the reason Mubarak was overthrown was not really, in my view, because of what happened in Tahrir Square. It's because the other generals um, who'd been his colleagues for many years did not like this, the idea of his son taking over. They thought it was their turn. And so you almost had this sort of coup within the, 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 the military ruling echelon. Um, Clearly, the pressure 
of Tahrir Square played into that dynamic. But I think, you know, again, when you come back to analyse the situation, um, I think you can get a bit too carried away with the role new media's had in these revolts. I mean, I, th- I think we are learning all the time. Um, as an organisational tool, I think it, it is, a, is a fantastic thing. I mean, what did you do 20 years ago if you wanted to have a protest and you were living in an author- author- authoritarian state? Well, you'd phone your friends. Um, the secret police would listen in and arrest you, and that would be the end of that. It's, it's far more difficult if you tweet or you, or, or you have a Facebook page or whatever, uh, and you get your message out. And, and I think we've seen that power. But as, 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 the, the, the question I have, and I don't know the answer, is is, this <coughs> is the impact of new media making the, the opposition more diffuse, therefore undermining the chances of establishing a leadership, or not? I'd also just like to make a quick couple of points. Uh, John's very powerful opening about the future of newspapers. Um, I think a lot of his points about newspapers adjusting and adapting to the challenges of the nets are very important. And I think in time, the print medium will disappear. I do think more established traditional papers like the Financial Times and Daily Telegraph, by virtue of our readership, we will be having print editions for a long time. I'd also point out that the Daily Telegraph, and I've been working the Telegraph for 30 years, last year we posted record profits. I don't see the profits myself, but the, the, the group posted record profits. The profits were generated by a mixture of the print edition, which still sells very healthily. Um, it is still Britain's leading quality newspaper. Um, but also by the new revenues coming uh, into the group from the internet. So as a media company, a a traditional media company, and by God, when I joined the Daily Telegraph under Bill Deeds in 1980, there was nothing more traditional. Um, William Boot had only just left the building. Um, To see the Telegraph, a very sort of ancient member of the Fleet Street community, adapt to the challenges and prosper uh, through the internet, I think is quite significant. Perhaps I could ask John to respond to that. John, you, you posed the question, can newspapers keep their shape, which I take kind of literally, but also about their existence as a whole, as they translate themselves into digital space. And when you see how people news gather on tablets, for example, where they're pulling news from a variety of different sources, not always clear where it's come from, do, do you see... Um, the concept of the newspaper surviving in that digital world, or do you see it gradually dissipating and it just being one source of news alongside blogs, social media, and the like? Well, you know, the, the, the man who says he knows doesn't know, by and large, on, on this and as many other things, but what could we say? I think once tablets become cheaper, much more widely therefore taken up, certainly in the developed and then in the developing world. Once a, a tablet, of the kind that Julia Hobsbawm is now tapping away on, um, become what everybody has, more or less, then, then the, the idea of buying a newspaper becomes increasingly anachronistic. I think Con is right. I think some papers will survive in a printed edition for a long time. 
But certainly in the, in the FT's case, the sooner, the sooner it goes, the better, because to schlep around the world with the FT is a lot of money. Um, you know, there's lots of printing plants, lots of logistics, so that something like, I don't know what it is, maybe Con will know they would be different, I guess, from the FT and the, and the Telegraph, but I mean, there's a huge 50% or something of a newspaper's expenditure is, is printing and distribution. I mean, it's a lot. <laughs> what we journalists call a lot. Uh, uh, and once that goes, then at least in theory, you free up resources to do better reporting. And if, as he says, then uh, that some newspapers are getting a lot of revenue from the website, then you, know, then you could see a new golden age, yet another golden age, starting. However, good for the Telegraph, the Guardian isn't doing that. It's losing, what, 30, 40 million a year? Um, no, well... There you go. But that, I mean, the it's, now lose, it's now losing more than, it, more than it ever did. But you know, John, the Guardian's never had a, a commercial... Um, it's never been driven commercially. I mean, it's, it's part of the stock trust. And it's never had yeah. the same sort of commercial rigours that we work under in a privately owned newspaper. But I'd like to pick up on something Jody uh, mentioned as well. I mean, if traditional news outlets like the FT, the Guardian, the Telegraph are to survive... It is crucial that we retain our brand. And like Reuters at the Telegraph, over the years, we've made our name basically through the accuracy of our reporting and also the, uh, yeah, the, the I suppose, the outspokenness of our, of our commentary. I mean, I remember Bill Deed said to me when I joined the Daily Telegraph, um, we have an excellent sports section, and it's just as well, because all the readers that would throw the paper away when they read the editorials pick it up again to read the sport. Um, but that is the, these are the sort of challenges you have in any media organisation. But I think if, if you're going to have a tablet, um, and you can read three or four different papers in five minutes, then you're going to select the ones, A, that give you up to the minute news and analysis, because I think we can all get the news, you know, a, a bomb goes off in London, we can see that on Yahoo, we don't need to buy any newspaper, but if you want to know who's behind it, who screwed up, who didn't, who didn't which intelligence agent didn't, didn't wave a red flag, then you're going to go to a, a media outlet, and I think maintaining the integrity of the brand, whether it's any of our organisations, is crucial going forward. The things I wanted to say that we haven't really talked about and, and perhaps feeds into John's point about the shape of newspapers is, is the increasing importance, I think, of curation. When you have the amount of information that you have, it's absolutely vital that you be able to sort that, whether you self-sort by selecting the people that you follow on your Twitter feed and then having that fed through TweetDeck so that you're seeing the right things, uh, whether that be having an RSS feed that you set up a certain way or by allowing a particular news provider to curate for you but bringing in other providers. I think that's going to be a really interesting model going forward. And actually, you know, to talk about the shape of newspapers is very interesting. If you look at what Reuters is doing with what it calls its front page, one of the criticisms often of, of our clients is that they could never find anything you know there was so much information it's a problem Reuters has had way before Twitter and everything else they just didn't know where to start and and so we've gone towards 
the newspaper style, if you log on to your terminal now, rather than having a, just a deluge of headlines, you will get a neat newspaper-looking front page, but that also has links to columns, also has the ability to click through to a video. Um, and I think over time, what a lot of news providers will look at is then bringing in other providers as well, so that you have this sort of curated and provided site. Because frankly, though you may be able to go through five papers in a morning, what you might want to do for ease, rather than going through the entire Telegraph or the Times or the FT, is have an agglomeration of those things in some other kind of app. I think the question then, though, is what, what does happen to... Uh, the established brands in that world. I mean, you talked about trust in your opening remarks and the importance of trust. Now, you could say that's something those of us in the mainstream media working for established brands cling to as our big hope, the belief that our readers, our viewers, our listeners, etc., trust us, and therefore we're more valuable to them than all this other information that's out there. Um, I just wanted to ask... Do you, are you absolutely confident that that trust in those established brands is as valuable today as perhaps it has been in the past, or whether people are actually less worried about whether things are coming from a trusted source? I think it's actually increasingly important. I think what people like is the ability to see everything. They like to have the ability to hear, see and hear the noise around, you know, so-and-so has done this terrible deed, and, but... but ultimately what people also value is being able to say being able to sort of take a deep breath and say well it's it's true because the telegraph said it or it's true okay the ft's come out and said it now well it might you know it must be right and that gives them that reassurance i actually think brand becomes increasingly valuable what i was going to say quickly is i think there's two different kinds of trust i think there's the trust of the accuracy you know this is a brand that stands for accuracy, therefore it must be true. And there's trust in the value system and the opinions of the news provider that you are associated with. So you go to the Telegraph, um, perhaps for the quality of its writing, but perhaps because its views chime with some of your own views. And there's a trust created, not simply that the news is accurate, but that these are people whose opinions you are interested to read. You may not always agree with them, but that you are interested to read. So I think, actually, interestingly, also, the, and I know this was a session earlier, and I don't want to sort of overtake that, but the kind of the brand of the opinion is also key. So there are some, some interesting blog brands that stand completely apart from these, these mainstream media news organisations to whom people, will, whom people will still read because they, they're interested and they trust them as a brand to provide an interesting kind of thought or an interesting kind of commentary. And I think some of the, the talk recently, particularly over Johan Hari, kind of was because that, that relationship and that, trust, that, that sort of trust in the brand was broken you know, and what, what that individual stood for. Okay, well, I'd like to come back to... Um hacking and what that means for journalism, a watershed moment, as the Times called it today, in a moment. So perhaps just hold it there for a second and compose a thought on that. Um, But let's open it out to the floor now. I'd very much like to hear you pick up on some of the themes we've been discussing. Gentlemen over there. Hugh Griffiths, Digital Potential. Um, You talked about, we've just mentioned um, looking at maybe three or four, five newspapers in in, uh, in a morning. To what extent will the branding be around 
what we've seen as traditional newspapers um, rather than the brands of the journalists themselves. That's a very interesting question, and I think it's interesting in the wake of the move. If, if you take the example of the move of Laura Koonsberg to, from BBC to ITV, I think this is a really interesting question, because kind of contained within the Laura Koonsberg brand, if you like, is the BBC, but also her own branding. And she has an enormous Twitter following, for example, based on who she is as a brand. So I actually think, I'm not trying to, to fudge the question, but I actually think it's sort of operating simultaneously. I think there will continue to be, for as long as these news organisations maintain their brand and sort of hold their ground, either in their opinions and what they stand for or in their value systems, but also in individual journalists who are become entities in their own right and therefore sort of transportable. Martin Wolf is another good example, you know, in or out. Martin Wolf kind of works with the FT... And then as a brand outside of the FT, as a commentator, and I think there will be those individuals who you might do a feed and aggregate into because they're Martin Wolf or they're Laura Kingsberg. Con, you are a brand in your own right, so can you imagine a point where you, you float yourself um, away magically from the well, no, Telegraph? I, think, I, think, I, I mean, I was going to take issue with that because I look at, I look at the Telegraph family, and I, you know, I've grown up in the Telegraph family. Charles Moore and myself started about the same week. Um, and you, become, you know, the, the, I suppose the, the the media can shape you as, as as a journalist as well. But I think the most successful a lot of this discussion actually is focused on newspapers, which, as John said, are the dinosaurs of the media age. But and we can talk about other media. But I, I think the best newspapers the, they they have a very good relationship with their readers, um, whether it's the Guardian or the Telegraph or even the FT. You know, the best newspapers have this everyday conversation with their readers. And I can write something very provocative about the future of the armed forces. But to my surprise, a lot of the people who responded, who served in the armed forces, a- agreed with the logic of my argument. And we had a very, very good debate. And it, but it was a subject they wanted to discuss. That's just one little example of my own. Now, you know, heaven forbid that the Telegraph would get involved in phone hacking or something like that. If we were to, our readers would desert us. I mean, our readers used to get upset if we put a picture of Tony Blair on the front page, even though he was Prime Minister. Um, And I'm sure The Guardian has similar problems with Dave. So, there is, I think, in terms of protecting your brand, and I, you know, in in a former guise as as an editor at at The Telegraph, you know, look after your readers. Look, and I'm sure it's the same with Channel 4 or any media outlet. You've got people who are coming to you because they like what you do, but you have to maintain a reciprocal relationship, um, whether it's giving them commentators they want or, or the coverage they want. But, but it, maintaining that relationship, I think, is going to be vital given the, the changing nature of the market. Uh, Derek Watt. John, you said that you thought there would be life on the tablet... But actually, uh, News International uh, are making turnover of only 8 million in one year. And you cannot service a newspaper on 8 million. So they're both losing on their newspaper printed and losing on their tablet version. So where is the economics of the tablet then? Well, I mean, they are, and everybody's losing money, I think, on the website. I'm not sure about everybody, but most people are losing money on the website. The Guardian, perhaps, most spectacularly at the moment. But it's early days yet. Uh, I mean, I think it's early days for tablets. They've only really become 
even partly popular in the last few months, the last year perhaps, stretching it a bit. So I think with diffusion of tablets and with um, many more apps, which are like the Sunday Times, the Sunday Times is one big app and lots of smaller apps, once you begin to get generally diffused out of the, sort of the media, political society into society as a whole, a realization of what a tablet can offer you, um, no matter what your habits or reading habits are, then I think it will pick up very sharply. I think the next two or three years, perhaps five years, certainly in the developed world, but increasingly in the developing world, you will have this revolution of the way in which we read, not just reading newspapers, but reading books as well. I mean, the last, last few months, you see increasingly people reading books and articles, downloaded articles and so on on the tube and in, in, in public places and so on. So I think that, that is going to be from being something which is the, um, the habit of, of a few will soon become, something like Tony Blair, will soon become the habit of the many. Um, I just wanted to pick up a point, I think, that the earlier questioner put up and that Con put up as well, and that is that what, what we're also losing, and actually the Telegraph shows it very, very well, is that, the, that and it's another, I think, argument for the beginning of the loss of shape. And in a way, the Telegraph, as said it with the utmost respect, has already lost its shape in the sense that it no longer is the paper that you joined, which then was a solidly conservative paper. Um, it's no longer that. I mean, what, what the Telegraph is known for, if you hadn't known its legacy, as it were, was that it did the expenses. It's become a revelatory paper, an exposure paper, uh, an investigatory paper, which it never was before. And although it remains on the right, I think the balance of comment is on the right, it no longer has that, you know, this is the conservative party in the club room sense about it, which it did under Deeds and to an extent also under Moore but no longer has that. The editors don't, aren't hired for that purpose. And the same to a degree is true of The Guardian. And it's true of every paper, that, that most papers, most big papers, started as the, the organ either of a political party or more often of a movement, of the liberal movement, of a labor movement like the Mirror and the Daily Herald and others, which then became The Sun, um, uh, or... or uh, conservative movement. And they've lost that. They've lost that because that no longer works. There no longer is, in the same way as there was, a particular community which will always read The Guardian, always read The Telegraph, always read The Times. So they're all fishing in the same water and competing much more viciously. And that, therefore, I think, speaks to another loss of a particular kind of newspaper culture, which was where you locate newspapers. They still are on a left-right spectrum. You can still put them there, but it's less and less important. Julia Hobsbawm. What I think is really interesting about this debate is, on the one hand, there's a debate that focuses on the economics of a changing market uh, and that we are all still in the middle of such a revolution that it really is impossible to get perspective. We, we are at a probably very unique moment in history where we just can't judge the history until another sort of iteration has happened. But in the midst of all of this, I think there is something that endures, which is to do with the business of information, 
which is that innovation trumps all the time. Innovation and the ability to distinguish yourself is not something that ultimately suffers. So I remember when Channel4.com launched 10 years ago or so, when the internet was new, when British journalists were literally writing uh, feature pieces about uh, what email was. You know, we have not... We've, we've, it's not that long ago since this was all completely new. So Channel 4 innovated. It did a massive thing for Channel 4's reputation that it went online with Channel4.com. When Thomson Reuters was under uh, you know, significant commercial attack from Bloomberg, it did what all innovative businesses do, which is it went back to its true self and said, what do we stand for? What do we do? How do we improve this? So that's innovation. That's talent, if you like. And so I'm actually thrilled at the exciting limitless possibilities because yes it's going to change the landscape is going to change the complexity the dimension the speed at which information is transacted it's all new 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 but you know let's not get too carried away we're still human beings producing this stuff consuming this stuff choosing this stuff and in the end the ones that innovate that challenge and i say this you know pretty personally six years ago there was no market for what editorial intelligence does there was no market. So, you know, you have one choice in that, in that situation. You make your market. And that's, in the end, what news journalism is all about, as well as those values, as well as everything else. So I think it's a really brilliant time, but we need to make sure we know, uh, obviously, where the money's coming from. And just finally, I would actually challenge Derek because I think 100,000 paid-for digital subscribers of Times Online in under a year is pretty good going. I think that's the sign there is a market. I think over 18 months ago, you would be laughed out of the house if you said you should charge fundamentally for content that we took for granted as free. That is not happening anymore. So the way that we, our values change has also uh, been affected by the speed. Thank you. Uh, another question over there, please. Thank you very much. Uh, Tony Gillen from the Institute of Ideas. I completely agree with uh, Julia's enthusiasm for the opportunities there. My question today comes back to the, the, the question of trust, uh, because it seems that everyone, that that's your biggest selling point, is, is the trust in the, the information that you produce. But it's not just the accuracy, it comes back to this point about sort of political perspective. Uh, but then it leads on to the question of, is there a danger in the current environment we have of people believing what they want to believe? Both at the level of social media... So when you're you know, picking up on social media, you, you, you run with the stories that reinforce your own ideas. And how, do, how can journalists make sure that they distinguish themselves from that and don't do the same? The, you know, the obvious example being the one that you yourself raised in your introduction, being the lesbian uh, uh, protester in Damascus that was not the case. Or, just recently, just in today's Times, uh, the Times African correspondent uh, bemoaning the crying wolf over a drought in the Horn of Africa. And you could just begin to see something building there. And lots of uh, academics and people that I know were picking up on the media story and talking about the importance. And then someone's come along and said, well, hang on a minute, maybe uh, uh, this story is being exaggerated. So how do journalists do... Uh, uh, the, the thing that we need them to do, which is not to, to, to run with those stories, uh, but to make sure that they're holding back, challenging, questioning, whatever their political outlook is. Thank you. Joe. I'd say two things to that. The first is on the question of whether social media encourages people to believe what they want to believe. I think 
that, that's true of newspapers sort of time immemorial. You know, you, you often pick up a paper not because it challenges you, but because it sort of confirms your worldview. And in fact, it's very interesting to hear Mark Lewis earlier talking about the dangers of the fact that the Sun newspaper chose not this morning to run the phone hacking story on its front page, but a story about IVF. And if you you know, you happen to live in a bit of a news vacuum, that that could shape your world view, and therefore, you know, that was extremely dangerous. So I think the, the kind of com- confirming of your own opinions is a danger that has, has long uh, plagued, if you like, uh, the media. How do journalists... I was actually going to pick this up on, on Julia's point about the excitingness of journalism. To me, what's exciting about this is... I'm always dismayed when I turn on the radio and hear a story that has clearly been fed to a media organisation by Parliament or is simply just a kind of rerun of a press release that I know has come out the previous day. And, and, you know, journalism, I think, in many ways has become quite easy because we have a whole PR industry that has innovated around the news, the media world that allowed that to happen, you know, that we just sort of let people feed us things and then we wrote it without much challenge. I think the really good thing about mobile technology and social media is that that allows all of that challenge to happen publicly. So it's no longer simply acceptable to sit back and just sort of rewrite press releases and hope that that will do. Actually, what we need to go back to and what is increasingly happening, I think, is the investigative you know, the papers for a long time sort of closed down their investigative units, and I, I imagine it's similar with, with broadcasters, and now actually what seems to be happening more is that people are pushing more to challenge, doing more investigation, running more campaigns. Um, and I think that can only be a good thing, and that's been allowed, partly because people don't have to worry so much more about simply just reporting the news. They can push it further and do the thing that actually we should be doing, which is getting to the truth, as Con said. One thing I found very interesting when I was covering uh, the Obama election campaign in 2008-2009 was was the way his organisation basically seized the internet and turned it into his own. To this day, virtually every day, I get an email from Barack Obama, Dear Con, it's been a struggle, but we're getting there. Um, this is multiplied by about 100 million. But when I went on the campaign trail with Obama, and, and I think you know, when, his, when we look at how he won that election and how he may work well win the next, just grabbing the, the power of the internet as, a, as an election tool was very powerful. But then when I actually heard him speak, he didn't say anything. Um, and for the whole campaign, he didn't say very much, really. He just spoke in these platitudes that we, as Americans, are wonderful people and together we can change the world, let's have change, yeah. And they all burst into tears and claps and it was wonderful and they all tweeted and, and he got elected. And, you know, you almost felt as a journalist that you were being sort of cast aside by the, 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 the swell of, of this sort of internet emotion. And I think it's, you know, again, we've seen it in Tahrir Square and other places. Um, so I think it's, it is very, very difficult for a journalist to, to stand up to what becomes a certainty. You know, this guy is a good guy. We're all going to vote for him. He's going to be president. But uh, um, he doesn't have any policies. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He's a good guy. So I think it is, it is going to be a big challenge. Just on this thing of trust, just a word on that. I mean, I think we have to remember that the most popular journalism, at least in this country, is the journalism that nobody trusts. 
Um, most people still read tabloids, and you don't read The Sun because you trust it. In fact, you may read it because you don't trust it, because when you don't trust it, it's more fun. What, what, when you do trust things, they're full of facts, they're complex, they're difficult to understand on one reading, or at least one quick reading, and they've started way back when, when you didn't realize it, and they're going to finish, if they ever finish, way down the track. They're just, you know, the, the stories in the, the, the heavy papers are just a, an episode in a long-running story, the details of which you probably have not grasped. The stories in, in, in the untrustworthy papers are much more fun because they have a beginning, a middle, and an end. You know what's happened. They're usually personal. They're quite often sexy. And they're pleasant. <laughs> they're much more pleasant to read. Uh, I mean, they're declining as well because other media can do, including mag the wealth of celebrity magazines and, and television and so on, can do, do it as well or better. Nevertheless... You buy newspapers, or the British buy newspapers, most of them, not because they trust them. It's, there was a poll recently in Italy um, about Berlusconi, who else? And it was discovered that most people who vote for him don't trust him. But they vote for him. They vote for him because of his values, uh, or lack of values, uh, or the feeling that he's one of them. But they don't trust him in, if by trust you mean, I believe he's telling the truth, I believe the facts that he puts out in the public arena are right, uh, they're verifiable, and he will stand by them and not say something different the next day. That kind of trust is for, for organizations like ours. That's especially ones like the FT, which have a niche, essentially, and sell on that. That's what they sell on. They don't you know, sell a bit on Martin Wolf and comment and so on, but by and large, they sell to people who must know things because it's part of their business, it's part of their profit, it's part of what they do every day. When people read newspapers, they want, they want by and large, a bit of fun. And Britain has been very good at giving people fun through newspapers, but not, they have not sold on trust. Well, question over there, and then just a concluding thought on whether today really is a watershed for journalism. Hi there, Oli Arbor from Nesta. Um, more and more people are starting their news journeys on smart aggregators like Google News and Yahoo News. In fact, you could argue that Google edits all of your newspapers. Um, do you think these new gatekeepers are up to the job? Who would like to go first on that one? One for you, Julie. Oh, that's a big question, um, and a very good question. Um, uh, since we're Reuters, and I don't have an opinion, um, I just sort of balance the sides. I think they present an enormous challenge to news organisations um, because that you're relying on the kind of quality of the search and sort function to do it for you. Um, but what, there, there's no... I think it's very difficult to compare and contrast any of those aggregators... At all, you know, is is Google up to the job any more than, say, I would be up to the job in setting up my Twitter feed to make sure I've got the right sort of access, or an individual who simply switches on the ten o'clock news and uses that as their portal, or opens the Sun and uses that as their portal for information? I think they will they they will all have a certain amount of 
risk inherent in the selections that happen. There isn't, there isn't a perfect... There is not a perfect aggregator or collator of news. And I think um, that the danger is if, is if we go to a model where there is only one. You know, if, if everything goes online, for example, and everything goes mobile, um, and you no longer have the choice to pick up a, a hard copy of a paper or magazine or switch on the television and all you've got is your tablet or your, your mobile device and you're relying on one organisation simply to filter all of your news, I think that's when... You know, then there may be a risk in anyone controlling all of that aggregation of information. But we're a long way from only getting everything... Actually, are we a long way? We're a way away from getting everything through a single device. Thank you, Jodie. Perhaps as a final thought, let me just come back to this uh, question that the, the Times posed today. And it could have been any newspaper. Uh, is this a watershed moment for British journalism? So we have our second public inquiry around the corner. Uh, of course, the, the allegations that have provoked it surround the News of the World and News International, um, and also the Metropolitan Police as well. But it is unquestionably you're going to put uh, journalism itself in the spotlight. Is this about journalism? Is, is it going to impact on all of us, the trust that we've been talking about this session, or is it something that will be seen as uh, about two different organisations and their relationships with each other and with their political leaders. Uh, we've got just a few minutes left, so perhaps a, a closing thought from each of you on that, please. Well, I think this is a crisis of news of the world. Um, I'm not sure it's going to rebound on the whole industry, as John suggests. Um, I'm not even sure what, the, what they've been doing as journalism. Um, I mean, the only journalistic point of it is, is that they printed some of the uh, material they got. But this kind of activity is beyond the pale. But the, 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 you know, the sharp end red tops have always pushed the envelope as far as they could, get away as much as they could, you know, pay, pay policemen, whatever they wanted. Um, it's a different kind of journalism. But as John said, you know, there is a market for Stuttlebutt, but, let, but let's go back to the 18th century when the first newspapers appeared. That's what they were sold on, Stuttlebutt. So there's an appetite for it, but it has to stay within the law. Thank you. Jodie? I think I'd agree with Con that it's a crisis at News of the World. I'm not sure it's a, a watershed for British journalism. I think post-2007 and the, uh, the jailing of Club Goodman, I think already there was a, a quite substantial shift in the practices and behaviours of a lot of these new go- news organisations, unless you know, they're all now using such enormously sophisticated methods that I'm not aware of. But I think already those kinds of um, revelations, you never really see any sort of royal family, those type of royal family scandal revelations that you did pre-2007. So I think those mechanisms and methods have already shifted and changed. And John? I think, I mean, I stand by what I said earlier. I think it is a crisis for, certainly for tabloid journalism, from which it will be difficult to recover. I mean, what, because, because of what I said earlier, I think they made this pact this, that, that they were in the business of exposing private life. That's been the main thing. Indeed, Paul Dacre, uh, the editor of, the, of, of Daily Mail and Sunday Mail, put it very well in a speech he gave to the Society of Editors in 2008, 2009, and he said that if, uh, and he was talking about the famous Mosley case, Max Mosley case, which Mosley won, 
And what essentially what Baker was arguing, he was very much against that judgment and very much against Edie, the judge who gave that judgment, because, he said, what Edie was doing, if it became general, would destroy the, tab, the tab, tabloid's business model. And he was entirely right. That is their business model. Their business model is revelation and especially sexual revelation uh, of celebrities, of politicians, of the head of Formula One, whoever, people in, who can plausibly be said to be in public life. And if, if private life is protected by law, and there's a huge fight about this now, indeed there's a, a committee being formed in the House of the Parliament, I think a joint Lords Commons Committee on privacy. The, the battleground is now privacy. How much do we keep private? And two things have happened in the last year. One, WikiLeaks, which, which is challenging what governments and, and um, institutions, official institutions can and should keep private. And the other one in British tabloids, what individuals, especially people who are in public life, individuals in public life, can keep private. And these two wars, these two battles are now very intense. What can and should be private and, and, and how do you keep it so? And our profession has been historically against privacy all the news that fits, publish and be damned. That's, these are the rubrics under which we've operated. Well, I think we've come to, a, a, you know, as the late Bob Waxwell said, the gravy train has hit the buffers. The buffers are that privacy, I, I believe in privacy, I think there should be privacy, both in government and in private life, but the, the tabloids have tried to destroy that. And, ironically, it's turned right back on them and is, is biting them in the bum very hard. So I think it is going to be a, quite difficult for them to recover from this because if they, don't, if they aren't able to, to, to pillage private life, they lose, as Dacre said, their business model. If they try to go back to some kind of daily mirror of the 1960s, which was cover the waterfront and was popular and explained things, but explained things in a fairly straightforward fashion, I don't think they'll make it. I think that that's being done by other things and it's no longer, no longer itself a viable business model. So wh where they locate themselves, I think, is an enormous problem. John Lloyd, Jody Ginsburg, Con Kaufman, thank you very much for your contributions and thank you for your questions. Thank you very much. <laughs>